right now. That, Lord, as we go through these psalms, that we would be comforted, we would be edified, we would be encouraged. And, uh, Lord, we thank you for uh, these uh, psalms that have been preserved for um, 3,000 years and will continue to be preserved for all eternity. And we desire to, Lord, be touched by them. Uh, I pray that um, as we come into this place tonight, whatever state that we find ourselves in, that, Lord, that we would know that you desire to speak to every heart in this place and that your word is inspired, that it is true, it's proven, and, Lord, that it brings comfort. And we can come and, and know more about your loving uh, kindness for us and how you desire to work in our lives. And we want to delight in you tonight, Lord, and in your word. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So we left off at chapter 19 of Psalm last week, and uh, we didn't get very far. We started in chapter 18, went to chapter 19, and going through the Psalms, you know, the first time that I went through the book of Psalms, that was a long time ago, probably eight, nine years ago, when we were going through the Old Testament, um, I was figuring on doing 10 chapters a night, and uh, (laughs) so this time we're going through it a little bit slower, but... Um, I just want to go through it as the Lord leads us and, and as we're going through these psalms and perhaps uh, as we start to pick up the pace a little bit, um, you know, later on in our studies we'll do that. But I want us to just look at these psalms, maybe perhaps because um, going through them again, it just really uh, is such a blessing to see um, these psalms again and read them. And, and many of you have done that. You've read these psalms over and over again. But uh, it's so wonderful, David. So wonder he's called the sweet psalmist of Israel because he's so articulate, isn't he? And uh, he's, of course, inspired by the Spirit of God to write these things down. But the Hebrew poetry that he uses and the expressions and how he cries out to the Lord, um, we can relate to that, can't we? Um, and it touches our hearts, and it's, and it's wonderful, and it's very beautiful and very comforting. And, and so I, I didn't want to rush through it, and I don't want to rush through it. But Psalm 19, that many Bible teachers and commentators and rabbinical scholars suggest that Psalm no, chapter 19 is the greatest song that David wrote. And um, it's a matter of opinion, but uh, he is... Um, so articulating and expressing um, his desire to bring glory to God, uh, as he does here in Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God, the firmament shows his handiwork, and day unto day utters speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. And, and he's just, you know, expressing uh, the, how great and majestic and, and, and expressing um, just the glory of God that is there in the heavens being told to us how glorious God is and how majestic that he is. And of course, David's out there, perhaps he's in Jerusalem, or maybe he's out there in the wilderness, and he's looking up into the stars, and and he says that the heavens declare your glory, O Lord. And one of the things that I I really see here with David, a couple things already that we've seen in these psalms, because most of the psalms that we've gone through, and we've only gone through 19 of them, uh, but half of the book of Psalm is written and penned by David. And we also know that David in those Psalms was one that he desired to, first of all, bring praise to God. 
and he desired to worship the Lord, and he also desired to give glory to God. He was one that he recognized that it was the Lord that was working through him, and then he desired to be close to God, that his relationship with the Lord was very, very important, and I don't want us to miss that point because our you know, Christianity isn't about do's and don'ts and religions and, and all of this. It's about relationship with the true and living God. And so wonder David was one that was called a man after God's own heart because he pours his heart out to the Lord, doesn't he? And these expressions and, and crying out to God in his trouble. And he is one that he will turn that time of tribulation and trials and difficulties and pain into a song. And I want to be more like that. I want to cry out to the Lord. I want to give my heart fully to the Lord. I want to express that praise to the Lord. And so David helps me in doing that. And it brings comfort to me that he is one that trusted in God and called out to God and knew that God was going to work on his behalf when he was finding himself in difficult circumstances. In many of these Psalms, we have seen that, you know, David is in a difficult time. He's in a trial. He's going through painful times. And so here, this is a a psalm that he writes, just giving a praise to God. And he's speaking about how, you know, the heavens declare his glory. Now, remember that as we closed last week, that David, he's not worshiping the sun or the moon or the stars, uh, but he's worshiping the creator. And as he looks around and he says, the heavens declare your glory, we know that as we look at creation, it tells us that there's a creator, isn't that? Uh, Romans chapter 1 says the same thing. Paul says that since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes uh, are are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and godhood, so that they are without excuse. And as we look at the heavens and and above us and, and creation around us, even though we live in a fallen creation, We can say in our hearts, there is a wonderful creator, isn't there, that created these things and created us. And that's what David is just expressing the glory of God that is spoken in creation. He speaks of the rising and the setting of the sun. Remember that in verses 5 and 6? For he has set a tabernacle for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. And again, that Hebrew expression and poetry that he uses is so beautiful as he's writing this down and rejoices like a strong man to run its race. And uh, I don't know, I bet every single person in here, at least most of us, if not all of us, we enjoy a beautiful sunrise, don't we? We enjoy a beautiful sunset. And we live in a part of the country where we see them. Just how, you know, the sun comes up and, and how beautiful it is. And I'm sure that as, as you see the beautiful sunrises and sunsets, just as I do, doesn't it make you think about the Lord and how great and wonderful he is? And he's a wonderful creator. So David is expressing that. But then in verses 7 through 11, what David does is he speaks about the word of God. The, the revelation of God in creation is limited in revealing the character in the nature and the attributes of God. But we see that in the word of God, 
that we see that it is God revealed to us, his plan of salvation. And he speaks about that, how the word of God is very precious and very important. And, and uh, he gives the attributes of the word of God. In verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. So we see here that David, as he talks about the word of God, he, he says the law of God is this, that first of all, it is perfect in verse 7. The law of God is perfect. One of the verses that I have my New Testament survey students memorize when they go through New Testament survey is that 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, that all scripture is given by inspiration of God. Actually, I also, when they do Old Testament, have them memorize that verse as well. All scripture is God-breathed, is inspired by God, and it is profitable for doctrine, for correction, for reproof, for instruction in righteousness, that the, the um, you know, uh, that every man will be equipped for every good work. So the word of God is profitable to you and to me, and it is God-breathed all the way from Genesis to Revelation. And so it's important for us to understand that the word of God is perfect. We saw last week in the previous psalm that is David that wrote that, God, your ways are perfect and your word, Lord, is proven. His word is proven to us. In other words, it's refined. Uh, it's perfect. Uh, we know that uh, the word of God is true for our lives. It is God-breathed. And we need to, to really understand that all of Scripture is. And that as we go through the word of God, this is God-breathed. This is the Lord speaking to us. And the reason that I'm pressing this, and I know that you guys know this, but in the church at large, what we're seeing is that there's a less and less of a belief that the Bible is inspired by God. There are those who come along and say and challenge the Word of God and say, well, this portion really isn't inspired by God. Uh, this portion isn't really come from God. Uh, it's just man writing his opinions or writing stories. It is God-breathed as the Holy Spirit would use those human instruments, you know, from Moses who wrote the first five books and all the authors through the Old Testament and the prophets and then the New Testament, the gospel writers and Paul the Apostle and Peter and John and Jude and James and, and uh, those guys, that the Holy Spirit spoke through those men uh, as those words were inspired by the Lord. So all Scripture is inspired by God, and it is perfect. And it is Peter that we'll see when we go through Second uh, Peter, that in chapter 1 he says that the Word of God gives us all things that pertain to life and godliness. We can trust the Word of God, and it converts the soul, as we see here in, in verse 7. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. So we can look at creation and we see that there's a wonderful creator, but the Word of God comes along and reveals the Lord to us and also tells us how it's a loving God who created us has provided salvation for you and me through Jesus Christ. So number one, the Word of God is perfect. Second of all, the testimony of the Lord is sure. It makes us wise. Now we do know, don't we, that there's a difference between godly wisdom and worldly wisdom. And we see that express in the book of Psalms, and particularly when we go into Proverbs later on this year. Proverbs is a book of wisdom, and all throughout Proverbs, there is the distinction between godly wisdom and man's wisdom. 
you know, uh, there is godly truth and there is worldly, uh, you know, deception. And so we see that this, the distinction that is clearly given to us in the scriptures. And the word of God is sure. In other words, um, the word uh, sure means reliable. Christians um, can rely on because it is inspired by God. And it is God-breathed. And it is sure. And it is something that gives us direction and guidance and truth as we read the word of God. So, Christians, again, can have difficulty with not only believing that the Word of God is inspired, but also believing in the authority and sufficiency of the Scriptures. You see, not only do we stand on the the inspiration of Scripture, but the sufficiency, right? And what I mean by that is the Word of God is sufficient for you in your life, in every area of your life. You see, it is the world that comes along and the world's philosophies and the world's ways and the worldly wisdom that we hear changes constantly, doesn't it? And we have the Word of God that is given to us that is, you know, proven. It is refined. It is sure. It is sure for every area of our lives. So we can read it and we can say, yes, Lord, your Word is true. It will stand forever. It doesn't change. And it is true for me today. You see, there are those who will come along, and what they will do is they will say, well, you know what, we need to change the Word of God, or thinking of the Word of God, to kind of line up with society, and usually it's so that we can call evil good. And I remember that, I've told this story before, but I'm going to tell it again. I remember years ago, I had a boss that, uh, I remember he was working on something after work, and, and uh, he, had a, he used to be a science teacher. And he had an old element chart from the 50s. And, you know, when you took chemistry, you had the element charts that are up there. And um, I forgot how many elements that it had. Uh, I think it was less than 100. But now if you look at that element chart, there's a lot more elements that have been discovered. And and, uh, so it's different. And so he was, and this was 20 years ago, he was saying that that chart has changed. And that's what we need to do with the Bible. We need to change the Bible to kind of catch up with the times and stuff. And he was preparing that lesson for Sunday school for kids. And you see, that is a mentality and a perspective that unfortunately more and more Christians and even leaders in the church have. That, well, we need to change, you know, God's word because that was written 2,000 years ago, or David wrote these things 3,000 years ago, and we need to change and catch up with, you know, society and what's going on and, um, and have a different perspective. And, and so we need to understand that the inspiration of the Word of God, the Word of God is God-breathed, and the sufficiency of the Word of God in our lives, it is sure, and it is true for you and for me. And whatever we read, and in every area of our life, and then also and the infallibility of the Word of God. And we can trust the Word of God in our lives. So the Word of God, first of all, is perfect, and it is sure. And then when you go into verse 8, he says, the statues of the Lord are right, which brings joys to our hearts. So the Word of God is right because it comes from a perfectly righteous God. The Word is right morally, you know, practically, doctrinally, And what it does is it produces joy. It produces joy. You know, one of the very popular things, I don't need to tell you this, that's in the church, 
and uh, and unfortunately, um, you know, it has um, spread and it becomes more popular and and um, you know the largest church in America. Uh, the pastor loves to give happy messages, and he talks a lot about being happy. Matter of fact, uh, he will even say in his wife that when you come in to worship the Lord, that you do it for yourself because God wants you to be happy. And, um, and so you worship, and, and it's for you. It's not for God. It's for you, and they clearly will say that. And so the messages are, you know, have that familiar theme of God just wants you to be happy in life. And, and listen, I'm all for happiness. And then usually it comes by as they will begin to preach about how, you know, the word of faith and, and all of this, and you need to speak it and have enough faith and all this other stuff. It's just another package of the faith movement is what it is. Listen, as I said, I'm all for happiness, but here's, here's reality. That as we go through life, that happiness we know is dependent upon circumstances, isn't it? And when we go through life, we're going to go through trials. We're going to go through difficulties. We're going to go through sorrow. We're going to go through disappointments. We're going to go through hard times. And the Lord, yes, he's not against being happy, but he wants to give you and I something much richer and much deeper, and that is joy. And that's what the Word of God produces in us. And that's what David is saying. He knew something 3,000 years ago that we need to understand today. The statutes of the Lord are right, which brings joy to our hearts. So how is it that we can have joy? Well, we've already seen that David wrote in Psalm 16 that in your presence is fullness of joy, Lord. David had such a desire to be in the presence of the Lord. We're going to see, you know, in, in um, a couple weeks when we get uh, later on in these psalms that David's going to have, I have one desire, and that is to be with you, Lord. In your presence is fullness of joy. We know from John chapter 15 that as we abide in Jesus, the Lord said, and abide in my word and abide in my love, then you're going to have a fullness of joy. So I think that we... All of us desire to have that joy, that deep sense of just peace and assurance that is in our hearts. And we can have that even when we're going through difficulties, even when we're going through hard times, even when we're going through sorrow, because joy is much richer and deeper. And again, it can be in our hearts even when the circumstances are very, very hard. So he desires to have that joy in our hearts and work it in our lives. So we see here that he says that the word of God is, is perfect, is, that the testimony of the Lord is sure. Thirdly, that the word of God is right so that we will have joy in our hearts. And then number four, you can write down that the word, that is the commandments of the Lord, is pure there in verse 8. It enlightens the eyes. It, it opens up our eyes to the truth of God. Here's something that we need to understand that the Bible talks about in Romans chapter 11 and also in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 as you move in then to chapter 3, that those who don't believe, there's a blindness that's there. There's a blindness that has happened. A natural man doesn't understand. And when we're praying for our loved ones and friends and, and those that we know that we desire to witness to that don't know the Lord, one of the things that, that I encourage people to pray as you pray for them, Lord, take the blindness away from them. You know, soften their hearts because they can't see. 
And remember Peter in chapter 2, we saw a couple Sundays ago that Peter wrote that you've been brought out of the darkness into his marvelous light. And I think that there's some of us that, that we can remember before we came to Christ, we can say that, man, it was really dark in my life. And how wonderful it is to come into the light. And how much of a privilege that we have the word of God that is given to us so we don't have to walk in darkness. We don't have to be blinded. That our eyes are open spiritually. That's an a, a, a awesome, wonderful thing and, and privilege that we have in the word of God. You know, we don't have to be deceived. We don't have to be blinded. We don't have to be confused. The word of God, the commandments of the God are pure, and en- are pure and enlightens the eyes. It opens up our hearts to the truth. And I love that, that I can go through the word of God and I can gain wisdom and I can gain insight and I don't have to be deceived. I don't have to be fooled. I don't have to walk in darkness but I get to walk in the light because your word, as we'll see in Psalm 119, is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path, O Lord. And it enlightens us so we don't have to walk in darkness, but we walk in the light. Number five, the fear of the Lord is clean there in verse nine and endures forever. Jesus said that to his disciples, you might recall in John chapter six, that you are clean by the words that I've given to you. The word of God never fades. The word of God never corrodes. The word of God doesn't diminish. How can a young man cleanse his way? In Psalm 119, by taking heed to the word of God. So the fear of the Lord is clean. And, and I don't know about you, but I'm sure you, many of you feel this way, if not all of you. That at the end of the day, when you've been out there in the world, don't you come home and you feel like, ooh, yuck, you know? Um, dirty and dusty from all the world and stuff you see and what you hear. And it's so important that we be cleansed with the Word of God. It's important, guys, that, that we are washing our wives, as Paul would write in Ephesians chapter 5, by the Word of God, that we're washing them, our children, just, you know, uh, having the Word of God that is in our hearts. And, and there's a cleansing that takes place as we go through the Word of God and as we read the Word of God. So the fear of the Lord is clean. And then number six, the sixth thing that David writes about the Word of God, the judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. And one day we're going to say righteous and true are your judgments, O Lord. Righteous and true are your judgments. The Word of God, the judgments of God are true because He is perfectly just. He is perfectly true. So six things that are here written concerning the Word of God that we as Christians need to understand uh, about the Word of God. And then David writes about uh, how valuable the Word of God is in verse 10. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. So the Word of God is very, very valuable. It is more valuable, that book in your hand, it is more valuable than all the gold in the world. More to be desired than gold, yea, than fine gold, is what David writes. Now, David, when he went out to war, he brought back the spoils. He brought back a lot of gold and silver and precious metals. And it is Solomon, his son, that had a lot of gold. I mean, he even wore sandals that were made of gold. So Solomon had a lot of gold. But here David says, listen, the word of God, 
that is perfect, the word of God that is sure, the word of God that is righteous, the word of God that is clean, the word of God, uh, you know, that uh, is, it enlightens the eyes. The word of God is to be desired. And my prayer and hope is that you would have a hunger and desire for the word of God. That that Bible that you hold in your hand is so precious to you and so valuable to you that we get to read the Word of God, have the privilege of God speaking to us through His Word, and we can trust the Word of God. And we know that the Word of God is for us, and so it also being so valuable. You see, I think, unfortunately, again, and this is just my own opinion, that there's kind of that diminish of the valuable, you know, um, and the priority in how valuable the Word of God is to Christians. It's like, ah, the Word of God's all right. Well, you know, but the focus can be on entertainment or other things. Man, I want the Word of God. That's what I want. I want the Word of God, and I want the Word of God in my heart and to have a hunger and a desire for the Word of God because it's so valuable. And then also, it tastes sweet, and, and sweeter also the honey than the honeycomb. It reminds me, the young adults, um, Travis was telling me that they're in Revelation chapter 10, and, and if you know Revelation chapter 10, that John, he's told to take the scroll and to eat it, and it tastes it sweet in his mouth. Ezekiel went through something like that. Man, as you take in the word of God, it's sweet uh, to be desired more than honey. As you taste of God's word, as you read his promises, and, and you're comforted by the word of God, and it gives you answers. And so David here, he's, he's always, you know, uh, telling us um, and reminding us how valuable God's word is. And then he says in verse 11, Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. So not only knowing the word of God, but applying it in your life. As we keep the word of God, there is blessing. Why? Because God's word is true and it's proven. It is proven and it doesn't change. And there's great rewards as we keep it and obey it, apply it in our lives. That's where we experience that abundant life that the Lord has for us, isn't it? It's studying the word of God. So David here in this psalm, just expressing, you know, the importance of the Word of God and, um, you know, that it's perfect and, and sure and, and right and pure and, and clean and uh, true and righteous. And I, and I love how David expresses that. And then in verse 12, who can understand his errors? Cleanse me from secret faults. Keep back your servant also for, from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me, then I shall be blameless, and I shall be innocent of great transgression. So David here is, the word of God, he tells us, will expose sin. Now Paul wrote about that in Romans chapter 7, didn't he? He said, how did I know that I fell short of the law? The, the law points out my sin. If it wasn't for the commandments of God, if it wasn't for the law of God, I wouldn't have known that I sinned in, in a certain area. And so Paul writes about that in, in Romans chapter 7. And so it exposes sin and cleanses us from secret faults. So sins that uh, perhaps that we don't recognize or see ourselves, you know, um, or are ignorant of, sin means to miss the mark. So we can be trying our best. We don't intend, but we miss the mark. We end up sinning. Uh, you know, uh, uh, impure thought comes into, you know, our minds, uh, an attitude, or we sin somehow. So missing the mark, that's what sin means. And then also he says that, you know, um, 
that also keeps me from presumptuous sin, um, which is sin done in knowingly. In other words, you have sin, which is missing the mark, and then transgression. And that word transgression means that you know there's a line there. And you say, I'm going to cross over it anyway. That, Lord, I know what your word says, and I know what the law says, and I'm going to deliberately cross over that line. So David says the word of God, there's a cleansing that takes place. There's a working because the word of God is alive to keep me from presumptuous sin. And, um, and we don't want to be dominated by the flesh. We don't want to be dominated by worldly wisdom, but the word of God working in our hearts. And let the words of my mouth, verse 14, and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. So David's desire, this is a good prayer here in, in verse 14, isn't it? Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable. David, the reason that he was called a man after God's own heart, because we've already seen that he was willing to say, Lord, I want my heart to be right and acceptable before you. I don't want my words to, you know, cause me to sin. So David, he desired to please the Lord, and he knew that it was a heart issue, and his heart to be right before the Lord. And he knew that the Lord was his strength and his redeemer. So Psalm 19, a a wonderful psalm. And Psalm 20, as we move into Psalm 20, to the chief musician, a psalm of David. Now, many believe that David wrote and spoke this psalm, this prayer, before he and his men went into battle. So we read that David writes, May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob defend you. May he send you help from the sanctuary and strength Um, strengthen you out of Zion. Verse 3, may he remember all your offerings and accept your burnt sacrifice, Shalah, which is a pause. So may the Lord answer us in the day of trouble. You know, our Christian lives, I don't need to tell you this, I think we all know this, our Christian lives, uh, it's a battle out there, isn't it? It's a battle. You know, I was reminded that Moses, I was reading not too long ago, Moses, at the end of his life, after 40 years of being in the wilderness, and all the things that he went through, Moses, I mean, absolutely incredible. Uh, Moses, you know, went through trial after trial after trial. But at the end of his life, the Lord said, okay, Moses, you've got one more battle that you're going to do. Then I'm going to take you home to be with your people. And I was thinking that's the way it is with us, that it's going to be a battle on this side of eternity until the Lord takes us home. And it is a spiritual battle out there. And Paul writes about that, that we don't, you know, wrestle with flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. That we're in a spiritual war and put on the whole armor of God that you may resist the, the wiles of the devil and the fiery darts that he likes to throw at us. And we need to remember to put on the whole armor of God. That's a study for another time there in Ephesians chapter 6 because the enemy does throw those fiery darts at us. He does do battle with us. We've won the war through Jesus Christ. But as long as we're in this life, it's a battle out there. It's a battleground, not a playground. And we will have those battles that will take place in our lives till the Lord takes us home because we live in a fallen world. We live with an enemy that hates us and comes against us. So David here, is, is, he's writing, you know, help us, Lord, in the day of trouble. And we can ask God for strength and help, and he gives us victory. In our battle, we can be strong, 
and victorious through Jesus Christ. And then in verse 3, they would give sacrifices as he may he remember all your offerings and accept your burnt sacrifice. So they would give sacrifices before they would go off into battle. It was a way of, of Lord, we need you. We desire to give sacrifice to, to honor you and to cry out to you and to give ourselves to you fully. And we know that uh, in 1 Samuel chapter 13, remember Saul, before he went to battle, he became impatient and he offered some unlawful sacrifices and from that time, it was when the Lord would begin to reject Saul as the king. You and I, again, remember 1 Peter chapter 2, that as we are told of the privileged status that we have in the Lord, oh, you've been rejected by men, just as our Lord was rejected of men, but you have a privileged status, and that is your living stones being put together into this holy habitation. Your living stones coming together in Jesus. He's the chief cornerstone. And you're a, a, you know, a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation. You're precious and special to God in His sight. And, and then he says, Peter, that you are ones that offer sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Of course, it would be Paul that would say that we're living sacrifices. And the sacrifices that we offer to God, it isn't the animal sacrifices of the Old Testament that they did. But the sacrifices that we give as we're a living sacrifice unto the Lord is the sacrifice of praise unto the Lord that's spoken of, the sacrifice of giving, the sacrifice of service, the sacrifice of witnessing to others, all that's spoken in the New Testament. And we offer those sacrifices a life pleasing to God that we may know his good and perfect will as he works in us and through us. Those are sacrifices that are acceptable to God through Jesus Christ, just praising him and living for him. So David here, he writes about they would offer these sacrifices, accept your burnt offerings. A burnt offering, as you know from Leviticus chapter 1, that burnt offering was a free will offering. And what they would do is put the animal on the altar and completely consume the animal. And it is symbolic how you and I, as we are ones that we offer sacrifices acceptable to God, that we say, Lord, I offer my whole being to you, my heart, my whole life to you. I want to give you all, Lord. I want to give you all of my life. I don't want to hold back. So those are sacrifices that we give to the Lord. And so David, they would give those, those burnt sacrifices. And then there's a pause in verse 4. May he grant you according to your heart's desire and fulfill all your purpose. So here David is talking about, you know, the desire of the Lord. And later on he's going to write, delight yourself in the Lord and he'll give you the desires of your heart. You know, some of you that I've talked to that as you've grown in the Lord and grown in the word of God and in your love for the Lord and having a heart. And as you've said, Lord, I just want to be, as it were, a burnt offering to you. I just want to be completely surrendered and, and consecrated to you, Lord, in my life. Now, all of a sudden, your desires begin to change. You're delighting in the Lord, and he'll give you the desires of your heart, and you have found out that your desires are lining up with his desires. You see, sometimes people say, well, I don't want to get too close to the Lord, or I don't want to get too religious. The Lord might want me to do something that I don't want to do. Listen, just delight in the Lord. Delight in the Lord. Grow in your love for him. And as you do, he's going to give you the desires of your heart. And you're going to find that my desires, you know, I have this on my heart. 
the Lord has given me this desire that I didn't think I would ever have. Because, Lord, you're putting that desire in me. It's in Philippians chapter 2 that it says that he works in us both the will and to do of his good pleasure. You know, I love that verse because he works in us both the will and to do of his good pleasures. And I can just delight in the Lord and, and you know, grow in my love for him and know him more. And he's going to work in me both the will and to do of his good pleasures. And then, ladies, those of you who remember in the ladies' conference that we had in February... That Ephesians chapter 2, that one of the lessons that you had was in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10, that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. And that word workmanship means a poem. Remember Joan taught that to you? And many of you know that in your own studies. The poem, pomium, is in the Greek where we get our word poem. You are a poem to the Lord. He desires to work in you. You are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. He wants to create a poem through you. He wants to use you. Sometimes we think, Lord, I know that you can use me, but I think where we really kind of doubt is, Lord, do you really want to do a wonderful work in my life? Do you want to use me? Yes, he wants to use you. He wants to use you. He wants to make a beautiful poem out of your life. He desires that you just surrender your life to him and, and are walking closely with him, that, that you are ones that he's going to put his desires in your heart. They become your desires. So David is saying, may he grant you according to your heart's desire and fulfill all your purpose. And verse 5, we will rejoice in your salvation. And in the name of our God, we will set up our banners. Um, may the Lord fulfill all your petitions. So we rejoice in him and we trust in him. We rejoice in our salvation. Do you rejoice in your salvation? I mean, sometimes we... We do rejoice in our salvation. I know we do, but it seems like time goes on and we kind of forget that, man, I can rejoice every single day in our salvation, especially if you're looking for the Lord to come back, that I am saved, Lord. And remember that, that we are, just as Peter, remember, he said, you're just pilgrims passing through. And he's writing to the pilgrims of the dispersia, that is, those Christians that were dispersed throughout the Roman Empire. He's reminding them, you're just pilgrims passing through, and that's you and me, and we can rejoice in our salvation. Isn't it wonderful that you and I are saved, that we have a living hope, that we belong to him, and we're going to live in heaven forever and forever and forever and forever. And you see, rejoice in your salvation. I think every Christian should long for heaven, should long for heaven and rejoice in your salvation. And it does two things. Number one, it helps us when we go through the junk and the stuff of life and the trials of life. That, Lord, that this trial that I'm going through, this light affliction, as Paul would write in 2 Corinthians, is but for a moment. Now, when we actually go through it, you know, it seems like it's forever at times. And it's painful. I don't want to diminish that. It hurts and it can be hard. But Paul had an eternal perspective. He says that our light affliction is but for a moment and can't be compared to the glory that awaits. So when I go through trials or through difficulties or whatever, I remember, Lord, that this is temporary, that it gets better for me. It gets better for you because we have salvation and we're going to be with the Lord. And second of all, not only does it help us in times of trials, but second of all, it makes us not get too fond to this world. You know, this world isn't where it's at. This world is not my living hope. 
is with Jesus. And we're going to be with him. We're all going to be together, you know, in heaven at the marriage feast of the Lamb. And then we get to come back with the Lord, don't we? And then we get to rule and reign with him in the millennium reign of Jesus Christ. And then we get to watch the heavens and the earth dissolve as, as we now know it. And we get to watch him create a new heaven and a new earth. And we'll be with him in a new heaven and a new earth for all eternity. That's our future. And that's why we can rejoice in our salvation. So be heavenly minded. People say, well, you Christians are so heavenly minded, you're no earthly good. Listen, I don't think you can be earthly good unless you're heavenly minded, right? I don't want to focus. You know, Paul said, keep your eyes on the things above, not on the things of this world. Colossians chapter 2, or chapter 3, excuse me, as he starts that chapter. Keep your eyes on the things above. Keep an eternal perspective on things. And that's a real key in our Christian lives. So he says, we rejoice in your salvation. And then verse 6, now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving strength of his right hand. So the Lord saves that are his. He is mighty to save because his mighty right hand. And then some trust in chariots and some in horses. But we will remember the name of the Lord our God. And they have bowed down and fallen. But we have risen and stand upright. And save, Lord, may the king answer us when we call. So David here is saying, listen, some trust in chariots and in horses, but we're going to trust in the Lord. We're going to trust in the Lord. You know, it was Joshua when they went into the promised land. Joshua and the children of Israel, they're facing overwhelming odds. The Canaanite kings all came together, and they were like the sand on the seashore. That's what it says in the book of Joshua. And the Lord said, Joshua, when you have victory, when you defeat them, because those enemies, the, the Canaanite tribes, they had chariots and they had horses. I mean, they had mighty army. And Joshua, when you defeat them, what you're to do is hamstring the horses, cut their tendons so they can't be used in battle anymore, and you're to burn the chariots. And when I first read that, I thought, why would you tell Joshua to do that, Lord? I mean, he could have captured those horses. He could have, you know, taken those chariots and had even a mightier, you know, army, a more powerful army, horses and chariots. But no, Joshua, you are to do away with those things because my strength, I want you to trust in my strength and trust in me, not in the horses and the chariots. When we get to Psalm 30, there's kind of a debate when David wrote that psalm. But David is writing about how the Lord delivered him out of very difficult times, just like many of these psalms that we've already seen that he's written. But I think that there's a clue in there in Psalm 30, verse 7, when David wrote that psalm. And I think that he wrote it during that time at the end of 2 Samuel, when you remember that David counted the people. He counted the people. And, and the Lord brought a plague. And the reason that I think that is because David, in Psalm chapter 30, verse 7, he admits, he says, in my prosperity, I said, I will never be moved. And you see, David counted the people because he was seeing how strong he was. He had forgotten that his strength was in the Lord. And he writes about it in Psalm chapter 30, verse 7. In my prosperity, when I was really strong, when we defeated the enemies around us, I counted the men to see how many men I had in my army, how strong we were as a nation. And I forgot that, Lord, you are our strength. Some trust in horses and some in chariots. 
but I will trust in the name of the Lord our God. It's true with us today. May we not trust in our horses and chariots. It's a blessing when God blesses us. But if we start to trust in our own abilities and what we have and, you know, our bank accounts and, and Lord, this is my strength, my business, whatever it might be for us, our strength is in the Lord. Even as a church, we need to be careful of that. That we don't put our trust just in how many people are coming and buildings and budgets and all of that. I want our strength to be in the Lord, to trust in Him alone. Amen? That's what we should be remembering. Lord, we're not going to trust in horses and chariots and buildings and budgets and, and numbers and things like that. I think it's sad when the church starts to do that. We don't want to get away from that. But He is our strength And he's the one that we trust in. So here David had the right perspective. We're going to remember the name of the Lord our God. And he goes on and he he writes about that. And and, um, he, he writes that, Save, Lord, may the king answer us when we call. So this was a psalm that and a prayer that they would do when they went out to battle. And then in Psalm 21 to the chief musician, a psalm of David, that we see that Psalm 21 is a praise of victory after his victory in battle and we read the king shall have joy in your strength O lord and in your salvation how greatly shall he rejoice you have given him his heart's desire and not withheld the request of his lips shallah all the praise and glory is going to go to the lord david didn't praise himself didn't praise in his strength there's no mention of weapons here at all he says lord you're the one that did this work you're the one that you know gave us strength you're the one that gave us victory and in your salvation, how greatly shall he rejoice. And you have given him his heart's desire. You've given me my desire. Remember in the previous psalm that we read, that in verse 4, may he grant you according to your heart's desire. And Lord, I praise you because you've given me your desires. And then in verse 3, for you meet him with the blessings of goodness. You set a crown of pure gold upon his head. He asked life from you and you gave it to him. Length of days forever and ever. His glory is great in your salvation. Honor and majesty you have placed upon him. For you made him most blessed forever. You have made him exceedingly glad with your presence. For the king trusts in the Lord. And through the mercy of the Most High he shall not be moved. So the king rejoices in the Lord because God protected him, preserved his life. Verse 4 again. The length of days forever and ever. Because we have victory through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, forever with the Lord, rejoicing in our salvation. And then in verse 8, your hand will find all your enemies, your right hand will find those who hate you. You shall make them as a fiery oven in the time of your anger. The Lord shall swallow them up in his wrath, and the fire shall devour them. The offspring you shall destroy from the earth, and their descendants from among the sons of men. For they intended evil against you. They just devise a plot which they are not able to perform. Therefore, you will make them turn their back. You will make ready your arrows on your string towards their faces. Be exalted, O Lord, in your own strength. We will sing and praise your power. Kind of interesting here. We see that what God will do to his enemies, and the enemies of God will come against him. Uh, It's interesting here that um, they intended evil against you. They devised a plot which they are not able to perform again in verse 11. 
it is interesting that when you read Ezekiel chapter 38, that it tells us that they devised a, a vain plot. That when you read in some of the Old Testament prophecies, when you read in Psalm 83, devised an evil plan, it's speaking of you know, what's going to happen yet future oftentimes, that man has this evil plan to come against God's people and against the Lord. And we know in the battle of Armageddon that it's going to be man that's going to turn against God and try to fight God when the armies of the world gather there in the valley of Megiddo. It just reminded me of that. And here David, in his battles, as he's fighting the enemy around him, how they devise a plot which they're not able to perform. And we're going to see that's going to happen in the future. Guys, keep your eyes on what's going on in the Middle East and what's going on with Israel. And there's a lot of upheaval. And the Bible says that they're going to devise an evil plan to come against God's people. And we're going to see that that will be fulfilled. And they will not be able to perform it. Because God will prevail and he'll protect his people. So this psalm written, you know, in the victory after the battle. And then Psalm 22 to the chief musician said to the deer of the dawn, a psalm of David. And we're going to pick it up next time with this psalm. It's an amazing psalm. It's a messianic psalm as David is writing about the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. So, Lord, we thank you for this time that we've had in your word, uh, for these few moments that we've had to, to go through these psalms of David inspired by you. And, Lord, I thank you that, um, again, that as we go through them, we can just carefully look at it and be encouraged and see the, how valuable your word is and how precious your word is to us. And Lord, that, um, that you're with us and we can trust in you and rejoice in our salvation. So Father, I thank you that the time that we've had in your word today. And Lord, I pray that, um, that we would have a desire like David, that nothing that is unpleasing to you would come out of our mouths, and that we would have a heart that is pleasing to you as well and Lord that we would desire to just draw closer to you and to know you more to know that in a fullness of joy is being in your presence and Lord just being in your word applying it to our lives so Lord may you that work in every single one of us